If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Amen. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are, no, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried, away. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. Amen. In 2010, uh, so eight years ago, right around this time of year, late winter, early spring, in a small town in Tunisia, uh, a young man named Mohamed Bouazi, a 26-year-old fruit vendor, uh, went out to do the work that he had done most every day to provide for his family, his uh, widowed mother and six siblings. He went out to sell fruit on the street. Now, he didn't have uh, the expensive government-issued permit that was required to legally uh, sell fruit. And on this day, the police came and they harassed him. One slapped him across the face. They toppled his cart. They confiscated it and they sent him home. Desperate and confused, feeling trapped and unable to do the only work he had to provide for his family. Feeling trapped uh, in a government that, that made very little opportunity available uh, for the poor to advance and, and to provide for themselves. In an act of desperation, Muhammad went in front of a local government building in an act of desperation and protest, lit himself on fire in front of the government building. 
Now this, this moment, this terrible moment um, of desperation sparked a fire uh, that, that lit and burned in Tunisia and led others, uh, fueled by social media and ways of communicating, others in Tunisia began to take to the streets and to demand a regime change, to demand that their president abdicate, that they have democratic elections, to put new rulers in place. The tide of revolution spilled over out of Tunisia into places like Egypt and Syria and Libya and Morocco. It was the time that uh, became known as the Arab Spring. You may remember that time. It was a time that was full of energy. It was a time that was full of hope, not only among the young of the Middle East, in the Middle East, but even here in the West. Right? We as Americans, are we have an, an innate bent towards revolution. Right? Our own national story is one that we tell of Revolution from tyranny towards freedom, towards democracy, towards self-government. And so many in the West looked on these events with great hope and great optimism that a new day was dawning. It was a spring leading to perhaps a new day in the Middle East. Well, today, eight years later, uh, life in most of those countries has gone through a lot of turmoil, but very little change. Many of them have traded out one president for another dictator, or one king for a dictator. Many of them have entered into uh, a, a cycle of civil war that's left unrest in their nations for eight years. And so the Arab Spring has become really, for many of us, a sign of how difficult real change, real and good regime change and revolution really is in this world. One Egyptian blogger who was instrumental uh, through social media in, in leading some of the protests in Egypt, now sits uh, in an Egyptian prison cell, serving a five-year sentence under their protest law. And this is what he remembers about that time of the Arab Spring. He says, I try to remember what it was like when tomorrow seemed so full of possibility, and my words seemed to have the power to influence, if only slightly, what that tomorrow would look like. I can't really remember that. Now tomorrow will be exactly like today and yesterday and all the days preceding and all the days following. I have no influence over anything. But one thing I do remember, one thing I know, the sense of possibility was real. It may have been naive to believe that our dream could come true, but it was not foolish to believe that another world was possible. It really was, or at least that's how I remember it. So is it foolish to believe that another world is possible? Right? Is hope uh, in a better world foolish? Or is it like one, one other commentator uh, who went through the Arab Spring says the prisoner is just always trading out one prison for another, one dictator for another. Is real, lasting, deep revolution and change possible? It's a question that we ask corporately, right, about our common life, about our government, about justice and peace. It's one we ask if we're honest about our own inner life and our own struggles with sin and addiction, with our own patterns of, of destructive behavior. We wonder sometimes, is it foolish to believe that another, another me is possible, that another regime is possible in my life, that real change is possible? Or am I always going to wake up tomorrow the same Dave that woke up yesterday, the same Dave that's going to wake up 10 years from now? Is real change possible? Well, on its surface... Uh, our story today looks like, similar to the Arab Spring, another story of a failed revolution, 
A man who enters into another Middle Eastern city hailed as a new monarch and ends mocked and bloodied and doomed for capital punishment. But at its heart, this story isn't the story of a failed revolution, but a story of a revolution that has the power to actually change your life, to change your heart, to make it so that the day you wake up to tomorrow is different than the day you woke up to yesterday. And the hope of a better world, the hope of a world made new. It's the hope of trading out uh, the powers of this world, not for more corrupt powers, but for the one true and lasting power that comes to give life. And so let's look at this story. You know, Jesus, uh, it's a little hard for us to remember if you've been in John with us uh, from the beginning. Palm Sunday seems like a long time ago in John, the triumphal entry, John 12. But you you remember, that was the last really public thing that we've seen of Jesus. From John 12 to this, he's been largely in the upper room meeting with his disciples, praying with them and teaching them. But on that day, John chapter 12, Jesus enters into the city in a story that I won't rehearse because we've sung it and we've prayed it and we've done so much of it already this morning. He comes in to shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Right, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem that day into a city that was every bit as charged and as tense as any Middle Eastern city today. It was a city that, uh, that was on the brink of revolution, a city that was like a tinderbox ready to burst into flames. You see, in Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, Israel and Rome lived in this uneasy political tension. Right? Remember, Israel was occupied territory at this point. They lived under Roman rule. And the deal that the Romans had made with the Israelites in order to keep the peace in Israel was somewhat unique. Usually when Caesar went in and took over an area, he demanded that the people of the area begin to worship him as a god. That they pray not only for him, but to him. That they give offerings, not just taxes, but offerings of worship to Caesar. But he had learned by this point that the Israelites, those citizens of Judea, uh, didn't take well to worshiping Caesar. And so an uneasy truce developed by which Israel could be pacified, by which they would agree not to rebel, not to lead towards revolution, and Caesar could get what he most wanted. And so what they would do, this this truce was that Rome got to rule, Israel would pay their taxes, Israel would go about their business of being subservient to Caesar. Instead of having to pray to Caesar, they got to pray for Caesar. And then in exchange, they got some semblance of rule over their own moral and religious life. They were able to keep in place the ancestral ruling council, the Sanhedrin, who could judge on issues of morality and ethics and theology within Israel. So basically, they got to keep their moral and their religious life as long as they promised that it wouldn't become a claim about their actual life, the life of their, uh, that they lived under Roman rule. Now, of course, the problem with that for Israel was that Israelite faith, the faith of the Old Testament, was never merely a a cornered-off part of their moral and spiritual life. These were the people whose faith was rooted in the Passover. Jesus, actually, this, this week that's taking place here was a Passover week. And so as the Passover people, in their mind were these stories of God liberating them from slavery under Pharaoh liberating them from, at the time, the most powerful empire the world had known in Egypt. 
liberating them, setting them free supernaturally, taking them to a land of their own where they would have a righteous king, where God's presence would dwell in his temple, and where from there they would be a light to the world. Uh, The promises of the Old Testament are astonishing when it comes to what Israel would, would experience. That their king, their Messiah, the son of David, would rule from coast to coast, sea to sea. That he would not overrule over Israel with equity and peace and justice and mercy, but that that reign would spread to the entire world. And so for Israel to to say, no, no, we'll just live as long as we get to govern over our little bits of worship and theology and ethics. Rome can have the world. Rome can have our bodies and our lives and our communities. We'll just take this little religious corner. Led to a very, very uneasy tension. There were always zealots that would burst up onto the scene and say, no, no, this isn't what Israel was meant for. And so revolution would come and then the Roman army would roll in and make life miserable for everyone else. And so there was a vested interest in keeping the peace and keeping Israel in their place under the Roman boot, uh, but not necessarily facing daily violence. And so it's into that world that Jesus rides in cloaked in the symbols of Israel's kingship, riding on a donkey as their promised Messiah would, to shouts of Hosanna, come and save us, son of David. Right, this was, in this moment, a crisis moment for the city of Jerusalem, for the people of Israel. A man who thus far in his life had lived his life as kind of an itinerant religious teacher in the backwoods, out in Galilee, having a small following of the poor that would come around him but essentially no threat to the status quo. He comes in now, not as a religious teacher, but as a king, as a liberator, as a Messiah. And he does so uh, deliberately. You know, Jesus, Jesus, it's unmistakable here, demands to be heard as a king, not merely as a religious teacher. Right, Jesus could have lived his life to a ripe old age as a rabbi in Galilee. He could have built a following for himself. He could have been a teacher, much like the Pharisees, who uh, taught the people that under Roman rule, if they just prayed more, cultivated their life, obeyed the law, that things could be better. But instead of growing to, to be a wise, old, respected rabbi, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, not as a rabbi, but as a king, demanding that the people make a choice. Will we not just listen to him, not just let him inform our religious lives, but will we embrace him as our king? Rome and Israel both together would have been perfectly willing to tolerate Jesus in a little corner of their world as a religious teacher. And that way, their culture is not unlike our own. Right? You know, Jesus, Christianity is perfectly acceptable in our world. As long as it's one of the religious options that you can choose to make your life a little bit better. Right, Different people choose different options uh, to take care of that little corner of our lives that we call religion. Things like prayer, things like worship, things like uh, the way that we uh, try to live our lives morally. But Jesus then and now doesn't want just the little corner of our lives that we call our religious lives. He demands our entire lives, the loyalty of our entire heart. Not just our our beliefs and our prayers and our thoughts, but what we do with our bodies, the way we handle our money, the way we approach our careers, the way we handle our relationships. 
Jesus comes as king to us. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said uh, that there's not a single square inch of all of creation over which Jesus does not say mine, that that's mine, that part belongs to me. And so Jesus comes into this tense world, this world where a delicate truce existed, and he shakes the entire thing up. He comes in as deliberately disruptive to challenge the status quo. What does it mean for your life? Where are there places in your life that you've accepted a delicate truce where you say, no, no, God can have this part of my life. God can handle this element of my life. But these parts, no, he can't have. Right? He can have a little bit of my time. He can have maybe my intellectual or emotional assent. But no, God, you can't have, you can't have my career. You can't have my bank account, God. God, you can't, have, you can't have my sex life. You can't have what I choose to do with my body. God, you can have this part of me and no more. Then and now, Jesus, then as well as now, Jesus comes in. He says, no, no, I come as king. I'm either king or you reject me. I'm either king or I'm nothing. And so he comes in into Jerusalem as king. And then when our reading uh, picks up, he's been betrayed. He's been handed over uh, to the powers that be, the powers uh, at rule in this world. We pick up the story as he's on trial uh, before Pilate. You know, the problem with somebody coming in as king, with somebody coming in claiming to be the power at the heart and over this world, is that this world is already governed by powers, isn't it? Right? There's already kings in place. In this world. And that's what brings this thing to attention. Jesus comes, and in the story that we read, both of the major powers in Jesus' world are at play. The Jewish high priests and religious leaders are there. They've condemned Jesus for heresy. But in this uneasy truce, they don't have the power to get what they want, they don't have the power to actually kill Jesus. Capital punishment was reserved for the Roman powers. And so they come, the forces and powers of religious power. They come and they bring him before Pilate, the the representative of Roman power, the governor under Caesar. And so they hand him over to Caesar and say, we've already tried him, now you kill him. This is a sign and a picture of the ways that the powers of this world rule over human life. You know, this is what uh, the Apostle Paul will go on to say, uh, we'll call this system uh, the principalities and powers that rule over this life. That when Jesus comes into the world, he comes into conflict with the principalities and powers that rule human life. What these principalities and powers are, it was Paul's way, Paul's shorthand, his way of saying that in this world, there are human powers that influence our lives, right? There's governance, there's, uh, there's political power, there's police and, and military power, there's religious power, and all of these things govern our lives, but they're not the ultimate power. There's what John calls the God of this world, uh, the the, the personal force of evil, Satan, that works behind the scenes to manipulate those powers to oppress God's people and God's creation. That there's always powers behind the powers that are ultimately the enemy. And we see that here in this story. You know, Christians Christians believe that power, authority, is God-given. Right? That's why Christians have not often in history been anarchists. Right? It's not usually been the Christian public stance that all government should be overthrown and there's no place for authority in the world. 
right? The Christian view has most often been that God has placed power in the world. He's given authority to men and women to rule over his creation, either for good, hopefully, or for ill, right? That the civic authorities of the world are given the power to punish evil and to reward good, to protect life, right? But that power, authority comes from God and is delegated. We see that in verse 11. I love this little uh, sleight of hand in which Jesus uh, knocks Pilate down a peg or two. When he says, you would have no authority at all unless it was given to you from above. Right, Pilate, you think that you're high and mighty. You think that as Caesar's representative here in Jerusalem, that you're the one in control. But you would have no power unless it was delegated to you from above. Now, this is, uh, on one hand, kind of a put-down of Pilate. He's basically calling Pilate middle, middle management, right? You've got, Pilate, it's not your authority. People are only nice to you because they're afraid of Caesar, right? People are only nice to you and obey you because they think that you're going to go and tell Caesar. And so it's not your authority. It's not your might. It's not your governance that they're, that they're respecting. It's only Caesar's. But beyond that, there's another critique, which is saying the real source of authority is that you wouldn't have authority if it wasn't given to you by Caesar, and Caesar wouldn't have authority if it hadn't been given to him by God. That all human authority flows downstream from divine authority. And so Christianity has attested that there really is a goodness that should be at the heart of human governance. That human governors, presidents, kings, all such people, should work not for themselves, but to give justice in the world, to govern in a way that's marked by wisdom and fairness. But those powers are twisted. Those powers get twisted when the rulers of this world, as as most of them and all of them do, become fixated on power for its own sake. Become fixated not on using their power for others, but using their power for themselves. Keeping power, protecting power. Using it to accumulate wealth and prestige, more authority. And so there may be no, no clearer picture of the way that this works in any of human history than the scene that plays itself out Uh, here in this story, with what should have been maybe the most benevolent power on earth, the power of the covenant people of Israel, the power of their leaders, bringing Jesus before the most powerful empire the world had seen to that point, Rome, and them together conspiring against Jesus. You know, the great hope that Israel had in its Messiah, ever since they were carried into exile in Babylon, They've been hoping that a Messiah would come and liberate them. And always that liberation was focused on liberation from these foreign powers, first from Babylon, then from the Greeks, and now from the Romans. And if that was what Jesus came to do, if that was the point of his mission, you'd have to say that here in this story that it ends in tragedy. Right? He ends up wearing the mock outfit of a king, a crown of thorns, and a, a bloody robe, bloodied by his beatings. If he came to overthrow the Romans, at first glance, he was a miserable failure. But yet Jesus, we see now throughout the Gospel of John, John's been telling a story about why Jesus came. That he came not ultimately to liberate people from slavery to the Romans, from imprisonment to the Romans, but from a tyranny that rules much more viciously over all of human life. He came not just to deal with the one power, but to deal with the power behind the power. To deal with the forces of sin and evil and death that keep people shrouded, blind to the way that they're being manipulated and hurt 
the ways that their own lives are marked by sin and suffering. He tells Pilate in the previous chapter that he's come for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. Right, that he's come to remove the veil from people's eyes so that they can see the truth, the true state of their lives, the way that Satan and sin and death have kept them in prison. He says elsewhere in John that he's come that we might know the truth and the truth would set us free. Right, that ultimately he's come not to over, overthrow the tyranny of Rome, but to overthrow the tyranny of Satan. That he's come to deal with sin and death and the ultimate problem that keeps us in bondage. You know, sin uh, does make slaves out of all of us. And we see that maybe no more, anywhere more clearly. This may be the saddest chapter in the Bible. Uh, and it's tragic, obviously, for the betrayal of Jesus. It's, it's tragic for his crucifixion and death. But perhaps the saddest moment in the entire Bible is when Israel's chief priests, their religious leaders, when given a chance, when given a chance to save Jesus, to spare his life, say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Right, again, this is the Passover people. This is the people that know that they serve a God who's more powerful than the powers. A God who they've seen humble Pharaoh. A God that they've seen uh, lead to their freedom over Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. This is a God that they have seen liberate them time and time again. A God who's reached out to them in, in love over and over again. And here in this moment, they choose their captor. They choose uh, their prison guard, Caesar, over their true God. You know, this is, this is what sin does. It not only uh, leads us to a prison, but it then makes us unable to envision a life outside of it. It makes us unable to imagine a life apart from its dominance. This is, this is Stockholm Syndrome, right? The, 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 the phenomenon that people talk about where people fall in love with their captors, with those who oppress and abuse them. When Israel says, we have no king but Caesar, this is as, as clear of a turning the back on their God as you'll ever see. Remember, this is the God... You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read for us a section of Hosea chapter 2. This is the God uh, who promised. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, at the days when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me Baal. No longer will they turn and worship the Baals that they had worshipped apart from God. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Right? This is the people that God called to call him her husband that she would be his bride and he would be her husband. They would be bound together in love. And instead she says, no, no, I have no God but Caesar. I have no king but Caesar. He's the one that gives me protection. He's the one that gives me life. He is my king. He's my husband. This is always uh, what sin does to us. What are the things in your life that you can't imagine being free of? 
What are the things in your life uh, that when Jesus comes to you in his redemptive power, when he says what's on offer is freedom, to set you free from this domineering thing in your life, that you turn to him and say, no, no, I have no king. I have no king but Caesar. Jesus, I have no king but money. Take what you want of my life, but don't take that. I've got no king but my money. Jesus, I've got no king but my job. You can have what you want, but I've got no king but that. I've got no king uh, but my marriage. Or if single, the thought of one day being married. That you can have so much of my life, but you can't have my romantic dreams. I have no king but that. This is where Jesus puts us. He demands that most core loyalty of our hearts to move us from our loyalty to other things, things that enslave us. I have no king but my addiction. To move us from those things to a place where we're able to confess, I've got no king but Jesus. Those other things don't hold power uh, over my heart. I have no king but Jesus. And so he comes before Pilate beaten and bloodied, just as he did on his triumphal entry, he's still cloaked in the symbols of kingship, but now in mockery, the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And yet what he brings to us is truly the only kind of power that brings freedom in this life. Right? If you want to know how uh, to have a real king, a true king, a good king, one who brings a permanent change in your heart, it will not come through another king that just demands from above, demands through power and might and coercion the allegiance of his people. It comes instead by a king who lays down his life in seeming defeat. Right, A king that's willing uh, to go to the cross to win his people. You know, the kings of this world, uh, almost by definition, demand that their people die for them. Right? Demand that their people kill for them. Demand that their people give their lives to advance their kingdom. And in Jesus, we see an utterly different kind of king. A king that lays down his life for his people. A king that spills his blood so that his people's lives can be spared. Remember, this event is happening as the Passover lamb is being slaughtered in the temple. These two great symbols of Israel merge. Their hope for a true king and their knowledge of their need of a sacrificial lamb, one to take away and cover over their sin. And so when Jesus hears the cry, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. He goes not as a victim, but as a king. One who rules all things, going to the place that he knew he was called to go, the cross. You know, the rebellion, the revolution that got us into this mess that we're in as a world. The revolution or rebellion that took place in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve overthrew God's reign by saying, God, you don't know what's right. You don't know what's best. And took the fruit and plunged the world into sin and misery. Begins to be undone by Jesus' work here. Right? If the fall, if sin is human beings demanding to take the place that only God deserves. Here, is on his way to the cross, we see Jesus, God in the flesh, taking the place, God taking the place that humanity deserves. The place under God's wrath, under God's judgment. And Jesus goes there willingly as the king that we can trust, the king that we can know, the king that we can love, because he's the king that came 
uh, not, to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we look at our lives and lament all that is broken, all that's not as it should be, Lord, help us to take our lives off of this world's solutions. Help us to take our eyes off of our own attempts to try harder, to be more wise, to be smarter, to be better, and to put our eyes on your strength, your goodness, your righteousness. Help us to take our eyes off of the kings and politicians of this world that in vain we fix our hopes to, thinking that they'll fix things for us. Help us instead, Lord Jesus, to set our eyes on you, the righteous and just king, son of David, son of man, Messiah. Lord Jesus, we pray that under your kingship, we would find health and wholeness and joy and purpose and hope. That as people of the king, you would fill our lives to overflowing with love and joy and gratitude. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.